The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. Man, we're very glad that you are worshiping with us this morning. It is the morning when we begin a new sermon series. You can see from the from the banner behind me, we're starting an eight-week series today. We're calling it Deeper, and we're, we're asking the question, how do people grow? And for the next eight weeks, we're going to lean into that question, how do people grow? When you walked in, you would have seen our banners that are in the hallway. If you have a bulletin, you see on our bulletins, on our letterheads, the mission of Heritage Christian Fellowship. Our stated mission as a church is, is Heritage Christian Fellowship exists or we are a body of believers dedicated to making disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. That's the kind of mission statement most churches have. And, and so we, we, we really want to be clear on then, what, what is a disciple? If we say our, our mission is to make disciples, what is a disciple? And so what I'm hoping to do today is answer a series of eight questions, and it's going to begin with this first question. The first question I want to answer today is, what is a disciple? And here's how we have defined disciple at Heritage Christian Fellowship. You can, you can see on the screen as well. You can see on the banners in our hallway. You can see in your bulletin. A disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus, is growing in the likeness of Jesus, and is leading others to follow Jesus. We believe those three things encompass what it means to be a disciple. Faith in Jesus, <clears throat> growth in the likeness of Jesus, and leading others to follow Jesus. The process of becoming a disciple of Jesus is what we call discipleship. Now we've, we've added language for our mission and language for what a disciple is, but we've not given clear and succinct language for what is discipleship, this process of becoming and growing as a disciple. So this is the second question I want us to answer today. If you want to take pictures of the screen, we'll leave it up there. You can, you can write it down. Here is my best stab at defining what is the definition of discipleship. Here's what I write. In discipleship, we walk with Jesus... And the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live in love as Jesus did for the glory of God. This is what discipleship is. In discipleship, we walk with Jesus and the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live in love as Jesus did for the glory of God. The journey of discipleship, as those of you who've been in the church for any length of time, you know, this is a lifelong journey of growing in the likeness of Jesus. It's learning every day to surrender ourselves unto him as he shapes us and forms us into the person he desires for us to be. And so what we're doing for the next eight weeks is we are looking at eight markers of a disciple. We're trying to add substance and, and comprehensive handholds for us as we think about, okay, what is a disciple and how do I thoughtfully and meaningfully engage in the life of discipleship? And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to explore eight markers. If you've got a bulletin today, inside your bulletin, there's a bookmark. I have the whole schedule of what we're going to preach for the next eight weeks on that bulletin. I encourage you to throw it in your Bibles, to track along, to read ahead of what we're going to be studying. Here's the eight markers that we have identified as a church. We've shared this in the past, and we'll be sharing it moving forward. Today we're going to talk about, number one, God-glorifying stewardship. The next seven are authentic relationships marked by love, gospel purity and mature doctrine, missional lifestyle, Authentic worship marked by love, emotional health, godly character, and a willing submission to God. And so that's what we're going to look at, at the, uh, for the, eight, the next eight weeks. Today, we're looking at God-glorifying stewardship. And so where are we looking in the scriptures to kind of inform ourselves on, on how to think about these, these markers of a disciple? We're looking to the Gospels. 
We're going to go to the Gospels. These are the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of the Gospels gives us a portrait of Jesus, of his, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And we're going to be looking for the next eight week at the Gospel because we believe it's in the Gospels that we observe the perfect obedience of Jesus as our ultimate model for what it means to be a disciple. It's also in the Gospels where we see Jesus equipping his disciples. He's preparing his disciples to be his representatives in the world upon his departure. And so our understanding of what it means to be a disciple and how to engage in discipleship is rooted in the Gospels. Therefore, our understanding of what it means to be a disciple and make disciples is rooted in what Jesus himself modeled and what he taught his disciples. So would you please turn to me, to Luke The third book of the New Testament, the third gospel, Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 11 through 27 today. We're going to take a look at what it means in discipleship for you and for me to practice God-glorifying stewardship. We're going to look at the parable of the ten minas. In this parable, Jesus is teaching us about what is at the very heart of stewardship. Luke 19, let's read verse 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he, proclaimed, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. A mina is the equivalency of about three months' wages for a laborer. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And he returned. Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 16. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. A second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And the king said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. The king says to him, I will condemn you with your very own words, you wicked servant. You knew I was a severe man? Taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And then he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, says the king, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for the enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So this is a parable. It's a metaphor that Jesus is telling. A parable is a known thing. It's a story involving a known thing that helps the hearers understand an unknown spiritual truth. Some have said that uh, uh, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so in the case of this story, as Jesus is speaking to those people then, he's using a, a known story. 
He's using a known thing, this idea of a nobleman going off to a faraway kingdom to receive his kingdom and then return. For the, for the audience then, the historical background of this a parable would have been the son of Herod the Great, Archelaus. He, he, he went to Rome to receive permission to reign as a so-called client king. A client king was someone who ruled over a territory that was actually uh, subject to Rome. And so the original audience would have understood this idea of a nobleman going off to receive a kingdom. And so what Jesus is doing in telling this parable is he's identifying some very important things about his kingdom. Three things, in fact. We're going to focus on one of them. This, this parable broadly fulfills these, function, these functions. Number one, Jesus is clarifying to his disciples the time of the appearance of the kingdom of God. The second thing he's doing in this parable is he's realistically portraying the coming rejection that he's going to face when he enters Jerusalem in the very next section of Scripture. And the return of uh, and his eventual return, but the third thing that Jesus is doing in this parable is is why we're we're reading it today. What Jesus is doing in this parable is he is he is delineating the role of a disciple in the time between his ascension and his return. So today, as we look at this parable, we're we're going to look at it because it is it is revealing to us the very heart of God glorifying stewardship. Uh, uh, the way that, that King Jesus wants his people to live in this time frame that we currently exist between his ascension and his return. And so we talk about stewardship. Now, I, I know, man, when you hear the word stewardship, I know what, you, what you're thinking. How about you just answer to me? When you hear the word stewardship, what do you think we're about to talk about? Yeah, we all think, okay, this is a money talk. And, and they're talking about Mina's three months salary. Uh, so here, let's buckle up. Paul's going to start talking about money. Listen, man, um, there's so much more in this text than about money. It is so much more broad than what we, what we originally think. We've got to think about what, what is a steward. Well, a steward is a, it's a manager of resources entrusted to him or her for the benefit of the owner. That's what a steward is. And so this brings us to our, our third question. Here's the, here's the third question I want to answer today. What is God-glorifying stewardship? What is God-glorifying stewardship for the sake of our our teaching, we really have to understand what this is. And so here's the definition we've, we've, we've given to God-glorifying stewardship. God-glorifying stewardship recognizes that all we are and all we have has been given to us by God through Christ and belongs to God. Therefore, as stewards, we recognize every resource we have has been given to us to be used for God's glory. I'll read that again. God-glorifying stewardship recognizes that all we are and all we have has been given to us by God through Christ and belongs to God. Therefore, as stewards, we recognize every resource we have been given is to be used for the glory of God. So what can we learn today about what it means for us as disciples of Jesus Christ to be God-glorifying stewards of all that we have and all that we are? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, I just ask today that as we take a deeper look at, at this parable Jesus shared with his disciples so many years ago, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the things that we need to see. God, I pray that you would call us as your people collectively, call us individually into something deeper, God, into a transformational growth where we individually and collectively are are growing more and more each day into the likeness of your son, Jesus. So God, we ask today, as we, as we unpack this passage and speak about discipleship, God, that you would meet us and do a work in us. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So imagine there's a man who owns a candy store. It's a huge candy store. 
And one day, his three-year-old daughter comes in to visit him in his candy store. And she walks in, and he loves his daughter dearly. And he knows that her favorite candy is Skittles. And so behind the counter, there's this whole entire wall of candy. He grabs a single bag of Skittles, and in love, he hands this bag of Skittles to his daughter. She's excited about this. It's her favorite candy. She can't wait to tear it open. So she tears it open and begins to eat, at which point her father lovingly gets down on his knees and says, Sweetie, can I have, can I have a couple Skittles? And she says, No, Daddy, mine. He's like, Honey, actually, I, I gave those to you because I love you, and I, and I want you to have them because I know they're your favorite candy. All I'm asking for is just a few of those Skittles, sweetheart. Can I have some? She says, No, Daddy, mine. And he steps back. He says, Sweetheart, you, you, you realize that I don't just own that bag of Skittles. Like, I own all the Skittles. In fact, I own every piece of candy in this store. All I'm asking, sweetheart, is that because you appreciate this gift I've given, that you just give me a few of these Skittles. And she says, no, Daddy, mine. He says, honey, when you're given a gift from someone who can give you all the gifts you could ever imagine and then more, all I'm asking, sweetheart, is that you recognize that this is a gift that has been given to you. All I'm asking is just for a few. This is the picture of the relationship we have when it comes to stewardship. The main idea of today's passage is simply this. Today, as we talk about God glorifying stewardship, we start with the premise that God is the owner of all things. It is all from him, and it all belongs to him. He owns all the Skittles. All of them. Our job as disciples is to steward or to manage God's assets for his benefit. Listen to what one theologian writes about God glorifying stewardship. This person writes, a steward is one who manages or administers the estate affairs or goods of another. Inherent in this definition is the fact that a steward is not the owner of what he manages and is therefore accountable to the actual owner. Biblical stewardship is based on the concept that God is the owner of all things and that the human race has been created to manage what he has created. In the garden, as God spoke a command over Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28, he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. This command of God further amplifies the fact that God is creator-owner and man is creature-servant. I'll say that again. God is creator-owner and man is creature-servant. The idea that ownership ultimately belongs to God, man, that is hard for us. Isn't that hard sometimes to think about? Like, nothing I own is really my own. We, we, if you're like me, I, you've worked really, really hard for what you have. You've sacrificed for what you have. Hard work is a, is a virtue, I think a good virtue that we have in our culture. I, I remember my college track coach, he used to have this placard on his desk that read, the harder I work, the luckier I get. I loved that little placard. The idea was that for those who work hard, it's going to pay off. And so we celebrate it, as we should. We celebrate the, the rags to riches story. We celebrate the self-made woman or the self-made man. It's the American dream that anybody from any walk of life, if they have the right attitude and, they, and they're dedicated and they have resolve and they work hard, they can make their dreams come true. They can make it to the top. And these virtues are fine virtues to hold. They really are. I, I try to teach them to my kids. I tell my kids all the time, hey, listen, if you just have a good work ethic, a good attitude, you're punctual, you have a can-do attitude, you're a learner, you work well with others, like you can do whatever you want. I think those are great virtues to have. The problem is not with the virtues. The problem is what comes after we find the success that comes with hard work. When doors finally do open and provision finally does start to pour in, we take a step back and we look at the sum total of what our work has accomplished. We look at the sum total of what our efforts have amassed and we become like that three-year-old in the candy store and we look to God and we look to others and we say, mine, mine, by myself. I did it by myself. 
The biggest hurdle to God-glorifying stewardship is the belief that time is my time, and talent is my talent, and treasure is my treasure. I think we have a tendency to fail to recognize that all we have and all we are comes from God. Now, I, I get it, man. I'm, I said earlier, I, anytime there's a discussion about stewardship, I, there has been abuses in the church around this topic. I know that. And there may even be some of you here today who have a, a, a sense of PTSD, like, oh, here it comes. You, you have maybe been uh, taken advantage of in the name of stewardship. Perhaps you've been browbeaten by spiritual leadership to give, 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 give to a vision and a direction that wasn't honoring to God, and you're, 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 you're nervous. You're, you're afraid, I'm going to give, 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 give until I'm left empty-handed, then they're going to abandon me, and what am I going to do then? I get it. And, and if that's been your experience, by the way, if you have suffered at the hands of, of, of abuse or people taking advantage of you or, or bad leadership that's, that's twisted the biblical teaching on stewardship, I'm really sorry, sincerely. I'm really sorry. That's not the intention here today. The intention here today is to look at what the Bible says about God glorifying stewardship and invite us into a process to let the Spirit of God begin to work in our lives. First thing we have to do, if we believe that a disciple is someone who is being shaped and formed into the image of Jesus, is we have to look to Jesus. And so one of the questions I didn't put on the eight questions is this question of who, who is Jesus? There's a book I've been reading by, by Dane Ortland where he's talking about Jesus, and he speaks about the relationship of Jesus and our growth. And Ortland writes, our growth is not independent, personal improvement. Our growth is in Christ, so we have to understand who he is. And if we, like we do here at Heritage, we believe that the discipleship is growing in the likeness of Jesus, we have to work really hard at having a proper understanding of who this Jesus is and what the Bible teaches about him. In his book, Ortland fears that people who've been raised in the church, they have maybe a domesticated view of Jesus. You think you've heard all there is to hear about Jesus. You know all there is to know about Jesus. And, and maybe you could even say, yeah, Pastor Paul, I, I understand that, that Jesus came from heaven and he is the Son of God. He, he came to live the life that I cannot live and he died the death that I deserve to die. I believe that. I, I believe in his glorious resurrection. I confess with all the ancient creeds that, that he is truly God and truly man. And yet Ortland contends that we have, we have a tendency, if we've been in the church for long periods of time, we have a tendency to, to have a domesticated view that even for all of its domesticated precision has downsized the glory of Christ in our hearts and in our lives. So what does our passage even say about Jesus? Our passage is linked to what happens in the first 10 verses of Luke 19. If you look at Luke 19, 1 through 27, they, they go together. We see, just, just in these few verses, we see so many different dimensions of who this Jesus is. We see in the first ten verses, it's his interaction with Zacchaeus, this short little man who climbed up in a tree to see Jesus. He was a tax collector, a hated man, and Jesus befriended the sinner. He went into the home of the sinner and broke bread with him, and salvation came to his household. We see in verse 10 of Luke 19 that Jesus kind of gives us his personal mission statement. Why did he come? I came to seek and save the lost, Jesus says. And then in story form, in parable form, he positions himself as king, who is going to leave but then come back victorious. And so even in these 27 verses, we see Jesus as friend of sinners, we see Jesus as savior, and we see Jesus as king. How many kings do you know that get off their throne to befriend sinners? I know one. How many kings do you know that leave the throne, leave the protection of their kingdom and their castle and go look for the lost to seek and save the ones that have wandered away? I, I, I know of one king. King Jesus. So as we think about who this Jesus is, that we're going to talk about for the next eight weeks and for the 
the rest of our lives until he comes home, we will never exhaust him. We'll never come to an end of him. We'll never, we'll never know the totality and the fullness of who Jesus is, not on this life and not in the life to come. We'll always be pursuing a deeper knowledge of this, as Ortland puts it in his book, this unsearchable Jesus. Paul, in, in Romans 11, 33, he, he writes, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Ortland says, let me suggest that you consider the possibility that your current mental idea of Jesus is simply the tip of the iceberg. That there are wondrous depths to him, realities about him still awaiting your discovery. Open yourself up to the possibility that one reason you've seen modest growth in your life, one reason you see an ongoing battle with sin in your life, is that the Jesus you are following is a junior varsity Jesus, an unwittingly reduced Jesus, an unsurprising and predictable Jesus. So we're going to behold Jesus today in this series until he, comes, until he comes back. This is the king who befriends sinners and saves the lost and so much more. And he is the one in whose image we are being formed as disciples. Amen? Amen. So, all that by way of long setup to the fourth question. Here's the fourth question that I want us to answer today. How did Jesus model stewardship? How did Jesus himself, apart from his teachings, how did, as, we, as we gaze upon the life of Jesus through the Gospels, how did he himself model stewardship? We'll use the framework of, of time, talent, and treasure to refer to the wholeness of who we are in stewardship. It's not just finances. It's treasure. It's time. It's talent. So that is a holistic idea of what we have to steward. How did Jesus steward the wholeness of himself? Listen to what two authors wrote in a book about doctrine, about the stewardship of Jesus. They said it better than I ever could, so listen to this. God came to us in history as the man Jesus Christ. He left the riches and glory of his heavenly kingdom for poverty and humility. His life was perfectly stewarded. Vocationally, he spent most of his life working an honest job as a carpenter. Financially, even though he was poor, Jesus paid his taxes and generously gave to the poor and those in need. Jesus' public ministry included, as he said in the Gospels, doing the works the Father had given him to do. His time and effort were so perfectly stewarded that in the high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 4, Jesus said to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave for me to do. And then let's look at the cross for a second. On the cross, Jesus became the most generous giver that the world has ever known. There, he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. He took our condemnation and he gave us salvation. He took our death and he gave us his life. And then following his resurrection, Jesus has continued to be generous. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us spiritual gifts for ministry. He's been preparing us for his kingdom in which we will enjoy his generosity together with him forever. When it comes to what sort of stewardship Jesus modeled, Unequivocally, we can say Jesus modeled perfectly what is God-glorifying stewardship. That takes us to the fifth question. Here's the fifth question I want to answer today. The fifth question we want to answer is, what did Jesus teach about stewardship? What did Jesus teach us about stewardship? So, as we look at this text that I read, this parable of the mean, as we begin to really unpack what it is that Jesus taught us in this section, but it really speaks to what he taught in the whole of the New Testament. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem in our passage. Just this parable that he spoke is the last thing he does before he enters the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. It was the final week of his life, and that week ended with him on a cross, dead, and then in a tomb. 
And so Jesus is giving this parable to, to, to straighten out the people that were walking with Jesus to Jerusalem. They had this idea that he was going to go and ascend the throne right then, an earthly throne. And so Jesus writes this parable to straighten out their thinking. They thought that Jesus was going to sit atop this political, nationalistic, earthly kingdom. And Jesus said, no, you, you got it wrong. I'm going to tell you through parable form what you're about to experience. Look at verse 11. He proceeded to tell a parable Luke writes, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So as they thought Jesus was going to take the throne, Jesus knew he wasn't going to take the throne. He was going to be put on a cross. And then he was going to be put into a tomb. And then he was going to raise from death to life. And then he was going to ascend to the Father. And so Jesus, in telling this parable to them then, is preparing his disciples for how to live in the space between his ascension and his return. Guess where we live? We live in the space between the ascension and the return of Jesus. So just as effectively as his message to them then was applicable, it's just as applicable to us today. And so he tells this story about a noble man who goes off to a faraway land to receive for himself a kingdom. And then he's going to return. There's language all throughout this parable about the return of the king. This is preparing us for the return of Jesus one day. So he calls these ten servants. He gives them each a, a mina, ten minas he has. And he distributes them evenly among these ten servants. And he tells them to go do business until he comes back. And then as we look at how the parable unfolds, the king returns. And then there are these four groups of people I want us to see. Four groups of people that are, that are in this parable that are important for us to see. The first group is a, aren't servants. They're, let's call them the hateful citizens. These hateful citizens, we see them in verse 14 and verse 27. These, these citizens, they, they're, they're characterized by rejecting the king in his reign. Verse 12 says, His citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And we see the king's response to them all the way down in verse 27. As for those enemies of mine, the king says, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The second group we see is the wicked servant. This is the servant who was given a mina, but they didn't invest it. They were characterized by their lack of trust and their unfaithfulness. And when, when the king returns, they're like, hey, here's your mina. I kept it wrapped up in a handkerchief. And then they say these audacious things about the king that aren't true. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. The king's response is like, oh yeah, you think that's true of me? Well, your very words that you spoke about me, those are the words that are going to condemn you. And he condemns, these, he condemns these servants as wicked. And then we see the third group in verse 18 through 19. These are the, let's just call them the sufficient servants. They were given one mina, they invested it, and they were able to make five minas more. They're characterized by sufficiency. And, and the king's response is to reward them. He's pleased with their investment, and he gives them authority over five cities. Then we get to group four, which is the one that is, is most common that we refer to when we read the parable of the ten minas. This is the good servants. We see them in verse 16 and 17. These servants are characterized by trust in the king and their faithful investment of all that he entrusted to them. They took the one mina, they invested it, and made ten minas more, a tenfold increase in their investment. And the king, his response to them is to commend them as good servants, and he gives them more authority. Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities, he says in verse 17. In fact, he takes the mina from the wicked servant and he gives it to this good and faithful servant. In other words, what the king is saying, he's saying, to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, but from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. And so we've got to look at 
this reward that he gives them. If I were writing the story of the Minas, I think my reward probably wouldn't be more authority and responsibility. It'd probably just be a load of money. Oh, you invested one Mina, you made 10 Minas more, two and a half years salary. I'm going to give you millions of dollars. That would be, that's how I would write the story. But that's not how Jesus or the king who represents Jesus in the story responds. He responds by, by giving them more responsibility, more to do. Their faithfulness is rewarded with greater responsibility. Because they were faithful in stewarding the little that the king had given them, he then entrusts them with much more. One theologian puts it this way. He says, the reward for faithful service is not rest, but more service. This is entirely pleasing to the servant of God. The servant of God is pleased when they're given more work. The reward of work well done was more work to do. The great reward of God to the man who is satisfied who has satisfied the test is more trust. And so he invests relationally. He trusts these servants who steward well what he's given. And then notice, and Kathy Johnson pointed this out in our study on Tuesday, that he doesn't tell them how to invest. I think that's interesting. He gives them a mina, and they're, they're free to go about and invest their money, invest this mina, however they seem fit, according to their talents, their gifts, their abilities, their vision, their personality. They're able to go and invest the way they deem fit, the thing that the king has entrusted to them. And for the millions of different ways that we are wired in the way that we think, there are millions of different ways to invest the things that God has entrusted to us. And so we have those four groups. We have the wicked, or we have the hateful civilian, the wicked servant, the sufficient servant, and the good servant. And we also have a fifth person. We have the king, right? The king was the perfect steward. He was given an entire kingdom to steward. And so if this returning king is a picture of the returning Jesus... That means that one day Jesus will return, which means one day those of us that are in Christ, we will stand before him, and he's going to ask us, what have you done with what I have entrusted you? Here's the point of the whole parable. If I had to summarize this whole parable into a single phrase, what Jesus is saying to his servants in this parable is simply this. He's saying, faithfully invest all that God has entrusted to you. That's what he's saying. He's saying to them then and us today, the king in the parable is King Jesus. The servants in the parable are disciples. So as we, as disciples of Jesus, sit before King Jesus, what he's saying to us today through his word proclaimed, he's saying to you and to me right now, faithfully entrust to God, or faithfully invest all that God has entrusted you. Give it all back to him. It all belongs to him. Everything you are and everything you have is from God. And he's also saying if you do this, you can expect reward. Faithfully invest in all that God has entrusted and expect God's reward for doing so. This leads us to our sixth question. The question then is this. And here's where the rubber begins to meet the road for us today. Where are you? Where am I? Where are we concerning God-glorifying stewardship? Let's think critically about our own lives right now. Let's look inward for the next few minutes and ask ourselves, God, how am I doing? Am I, am I, am I, Am I stewarding what you have entrusted to me in a way that is glorifying to you? We, we, we have this discipleship survey that many of you have taken. Over 100 of people from Heritage have taken this survey. And the second lowest area of discipleship for us as a church is, is in the area of God-glorifying stewardship. The question or the statement, I am an excellent steward that gives God uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an excellent steward of the gifts that God has given me. That statement was the, we responded the lowest in responding to that statement. 
And so we got to think about where, where am I? So let's take a minute here just to figure out where we are. I was talking to Jeremy this week, and he was meeting with, with Jacob Cook and Mike Dietz to write our, our huddle group curriculum. And as they were looking at this passage, they recognized these five groups that I, that I, that I highlighted earlier. And they're like, but put those on a continuum. It's sort of like a continuum for us to sort of assess where we are. So uh, if the continuum goes from one to five, one is failing, five is flourishing. Who, the, the, sitting in the one position is the, the hateful s- citizen. This hateful citizen rejects the reign of Jesus and says, nothing belongs to you, I'm, I'm God of my own life. That's, if that's where you are today, then you're a one on the continuum if you're rating how you're doing in the area of God-glorifying stewardship. The next is the, is the wicked servant who's been entrusted with things that God has entrusted you, but you, you, you failed to invest anything that God has entrusted to you. That would be the second spot. The third spot is the sufficient servant. God has entrusted to you many things, and you are, you're, you're seeking to invest it back to God for his glory. You're not knocking it out of the park necessarily, but you're figuring it out. The fourth position would be the good steward. The good steward is the one that was a faithful steward who invested and makes a strong attempt to, to, entrust, to, to invest all that God has entrusted for the sake of his kingdom. And then the fifth position is the perfect steward, the king himself. And so if you had to be honest about your life today and how you're doing in the area of God glorifying stewardship, are you a one? Have you rejected the reign of Jesus over your life in every way? Are you a two? Have you been entrusted but haven't invested a thing? Are you three? Are you trying to figure this out? You win some, you lose some. Are you four? Are you committed to saying, man, whatever it takes, God, it all belongs to you. I believe that to be true, and I want to live in that way. And none of you are five, so let's not even consider that one. So are you a one, two, three, or four? Honestly, give yourself a rating in your mind. Are you investing your time, church? And how are you investing your time? Do you view your time as a gift from God? Do you you view your time as a gift from God that ought to be given back to him as an offering? Is your schedule open to God for him to use for his purposes? Do you recognize the importance of Sabbath? And take time away from busyness and give that time to God. Do you set aside time in your schedule to meet with God that your soul may be nourished? Do you, are you open to blessed distractions? If God intervenes and messes up your schedule, are you open to hearing the Spirit of God and respond to that in a way that would be stewarding your time? How are you at investing your talent, church? Do you view your gifts, your abilities, your skills, and your talents as, as a gift from God that ought to be given back to God as an offering? Are your talents available right now? Are your talents available right now for God to use for his purposes? Have you made those available to him? Do you serve others with your talents? Do you view God or do you view your God-given talents as gifts that need to be shared for the good of others and for the glory of God? What about your treasures? Do you view your finances and your assets and your property and your possessions as a gift from God that really belong to him and that ought to be given back to him as an offering? Do you seek to invest your treasure into the kingdom of God or into the kingdom of self? Are your treasures available for God to use for his purposes? Now, if a steward manager, if a steward rather, is a manager of resources entrusted to them for the benefit of the owner, and also if God-glorifying stewardship recognizes that all we have and all that we are has been given to us by God through Christ and belongs to him, Therefore, as stewards, we are to recognize that every resource we have has been given to us to be used for the glory of God. If, if that is true, if that's the goal, one, two, three, four, or five, where do you find yourself? No shame. I'm not trying to shame anybody because I want us to go to question seven very quick. 
How can you, how can I, how can we grow as God-glorifying stewards? That's the question. It's not about where you are in the continuum. It's about growth. What is the next step? If, if you're a one, so be it. You're a one. You're honest with God and yourself. Awesome. If you're a four, great. The question then becomes as we sit in this place, if growth is the goal, what does that next step look like for you and for me? I think if we want to grow as God-glorifying stewards, we, we can't begin by going to a checklist. That's not the point here. If we want to grow as God-glorifying stewards, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to agree with God and the Bible that we own nothing and he owns everything. That's where we have to start. We have to agree with King David in Psalm 24, verse 1, where he says, The earth is the Lord's. Everything in the earth is the Lord's. The world is the Lord's. All who live in it are the Lord's. We have to agree that the teaching of the Bible is correct. It tells us that all that we are and all that we have has been given to us by God through Christ, and it belongs to God. We have to agree with that premise. We have to agree with the Bible that that whatever blessings we enjoy in our life today, they are purely gifts from God. James says in chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And like this parable teaches us, if all that is true, if we want to begin to be good stewards, we have to take a heart posture, the same heart posture as the good servant. And we have to resolve in our heart of hearts to faithfully invest all that God has entrusted to you and to me. And in so doing, we can expect his reward. And so before, I don't want to run to practicalities because it's so easy for us to do this on our own strength. Before we speak about about the practical ways you and I can begin to live out God-glorifying stewardship, our heart posture towards our time and our talent and our treasure needs to be one that recognizes everything is God's. And all that we are and all that we have belong to Him. It's in light of that truth that we begin to live as God-glorifying stewards. So how do we do it? How do we do it? I, I like how the small group curriculum for Heritage Reads. The question they ask is, is, how do we partner with the Holy Spirit in his desire to make us stewards like Jesus? And it goes on to kind of say, well, how does this look? Well, they write, it may mean practicing disciplines like tithing and almsgiving or dedicated hours of prayer. Leaning in, as, as we partner with the Holy Spirit to grow in the area of God-glorifying stewardship, it may mean going without things so that we can afford, the things that we cannot afford. It may mean that we, we, we commit ourselves to getting out of debt. It means making choices to be generous with our time and our talent and our treasure without forsaking the responsibilities to steward rest and family and work. As we seek to grow as God-glorifying stewards, it may mean using our creative skills for the good of others or employing our spiritual gifts to serve in the church or in the local community. You see, we partner with the Holy Spirit by offering up the resources we have, the ones we've been entrusted with, we do so for His use. Whether you have a lot of resource or a little, that's not the point. The point is our heart posture. And you know what I've seen in the last two years of being here at Heritage? We're a really generous church. Church, you're, you're... I've seen some beautiful acts of God-glorifying stewardship in my time here. I've seen Joe and Marnie giving rides to people who don't have a ride to church, giving of their time and their energy and their vehicle to lovingly give rides to to church for people who don't have the means. I've seen entire huddle groups put pause on their life to come around fellow believers who are struggling in their group, to offer friendship and counsel and assistance and comfort. I've seen dozens of people from our church who stop me week after week after week and say, how's Sherry? They don't say, how's your mom? I say, Paul, how's Sherry? They know my mom's name is Sherry because they've listened, praying for her, Paul. How's her, how's her battle with lung cancer going, Paul? I mean, you know how sweet it is for me as your pastor to know that my congregation is praying for my mom 
who's 2,300 miles away battling lung cancer. You've given me your time and your prayers. That's beautiful stewardship for the glory of God. I've seen our church steward time or talent. I've seen my friend Pat, who came to my house and helped my son and our family build an apartment in our garage so my daughter and my grandson could have a place to live. In the hottest parts of summer, volunteered his time for days and days and days. You and I have been blessed to be led in worship by Mitch and, and Teresa over the last six months to a year as they have sung for us and led us in worship to songs that the Holy Spirit inspired them to write, worship songs that exalt Christ and bring us into worship, stewarding their artistic gifts back to God for his glory and for our benefit. I've seen Walter and Neil who've designed our signs and our graphics and our bulletins and our banners and everything you see designed around here, giving of their time and their artistic ability for the glory of God. I've seen our church steward their treasures. I've seen the people in our church give sacrificially to the dozens and dozens and dozens of students in Uganda who otherwise would not have an opportunity to get a Christian education, but because of the generosity and the stewardship of the people of our church, dozens and dozens and dozens of children in Uganda today are receiving a Christian education because of your stewardship. The people of our church have taken the initiative to go and purchase food and go to, 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 to communities of need and to prepare the food and share a meal with those who are struggling in our community on their own dime, stewarding their talent and their treasure and their time. And week after week, I see the generosity of our church. Folks, I've been in churches in the past where we've had to wait to cast the staff checks because we had to wait for offering to come in on Sunday. I've been in churches where we've had to send out letters and say, hey, we don't want to badger you, but things are tight. You're a generous church. Our church is exceedingly generous. The men and women of heritage steward their finances to the glory of God. You entrust your finances to the leadership of our church, and we're not in want. God has given us resources to, to, to put our hand to the works of ministry for the glory of God. That's you stewarding your resources. I'm so grateful for the, for the generosity and the stewardship of the people of heritage. It looks so many ways, church. I could, I could tell us a thousand ways this looks, God-glorifying stewardship. It's the teacher who stewards her gifts as a teacher to, to proclaim the gospel to children, to raise up a generation that knows and loves Jesus. It's the, it's the coach who loves the sport and loves students and invests his time and his energy to coach a sport, to raise up young athletes, to have godly character and be released into the world as disciples of Jesus. It's, it's, it's the extrovert who stewards her, her extroversion and her friendliness to, to make the, the stranger across the street a neighbor. And they invite the neighbor into their home with the gifts of hospitality and they make the neighbor friend. And then through the context of friendship, they lead the friend into the family of God. It's the tradesman who is highly skilled at his trade, who serves those in need within the body of Christ, within the broader community, who dedicates two weeks a year to hop on a plane, fly overseas, employ his trades to the most desperate communities on the planet for the glory of God. And you know what? Stewardship is sometimes even stewarding the most painful parts of our life. Stewardship is not burying the most painful moments of our life. You know what I've seen in my life? I've seen parents who have wept at the grave of children, I've seen them get in a car and drive to a funeral home to wrap grieving parents in their arms and say, we're going to get through this together. I know what it's like. God-honoring stewardship can look so many different ways. It's not an attempt to earn God's favor. We're not promoting legalism here. Legalism says do. The gospel says done. Our stewardship is born out of what Christ has already accomplished for us. Our giving is the result of the gospel. God-glorifying stewardship earns us nothing. We have all that we need in Christ already. 
As those who've been forgiven and saved by God, giving is a joyous offering done in response to all that God has given us in his son Jesus. Amen? As benefactors of the generosity of God through Jesus, we generously give as a free will offering to the glory of God. This is God honoring stewardship. As God glorifying stewards, we recognize that all we are and all we have has been given, a, given to us by God through Christ and it belongs to him. Therefore, as stewards, we recognize every resource we have has been given to us to be used for the glory of God. And so we are to take that posture, church, that the, that the good stewards took in the parable. We take that posture where we say to God, I'm going to faithfully invest all that you have entrusted to me for your glory. And God, I know the, I, can, I, can, I, I can expect the rewards you have for me when I live faithfully for you. That takes us to question number eight. And the final question. As disciples of Jesus Christ Church, how can we help each other grow as God-glorifying stewards? As disciples of Jesus, how can you and I help each other grow? Jeremy painted a beautiful picture a few moments ago of what discipleship communities look like at Heritage, where we invest in one another's lives, where we know others and are known by others. What, was it, what would it look like for us as a church to invest in one another's lives that, that we might grow in the area of God-glorifying stewardship. We, we can't grow in a vacuum. You know that. We need one another. We are sharpened by one another. We can't grow in isolation. So what does that look like? I can't remember who it was, but it was during our staff on, on Sunday. Someone mentioned, what, what, I think it was Kathy, she mentioned, what would it look like, church, as we get to know one another, as we learn to, to look into one another's lives and, and, and share life with one another, as the, as, the, as the Christian masks come down, as the defenses come down, and we actually are, are willing to be just a little bit authentic with one another, which, which can happen, praise God, is that, if that begins to happen in our life, can you imagine as you're doing community with other people, if you looked at them and you just begin to speak truths into their life, you know what I, you begin to say to your brother and your sister, man, I see beautiful things in you. I see what God has entrusted in you, and it's beautiful. Can I encourage you to invest that for the glory of God? It's, it's, it's brothers and sisters in Christ speaking to one another. It's saying, sister, I see that God has given you the gift of compassion. You're the best listener I've ever been around. Steward that for the glory of God. It's saying to our brother in Christ, God has blessed you with incredible artistic abilities create, inspire, and share for the glory of God. It's saying to our friend, God has given you sweet time in retirement, and he's given you sweet wisdom, two of the most valuable assets, time and wisdom. Don't sit on that, brother. Invest it for the glory of God. Steward that for the glory of God. It's saying to the married couple who has a healed and healthy marriage, God has given you a healed and healthy marriage that others could so benefit from. Steward it for the glory of God. It goes on and on. Can you imagine a community of believers gifted by God with time and with talent and with treasure faithfully investing into each other's lives? Disciples making disciples. Not a program that the church does. Not a top-down program where you sign up, but, but men and women animated by the Spirit of God, responding to a conviction of the Spirit, lifting their eyes up and leaning into one another and living in authentic, organic, Christ-exalting community. Can you imagine that? Fully investing in each other's lives, disciples making disciples, sharing your areas of strength with one another. Because there are some of you in this room right now, you are a four. 
You are good stewards. God has given you that. He has worked in your life in profound ways, and you have learned to, to desire to give it all back to God. You recognize it all belongs to him anyways, and it's all from him. So you, you want to live a God-glorifying, good steward-like life. Look around. There's not many of us there. We need you. People could learn from you. What would it look like for those of you that are God-glorifying stewards to humbly open up your life, to share how God has grown you in this area? Can you see the depth that a congregation could experience if men and women in the body of Christ would open up their lives to one another, to sharpen one another, to grow together with entrusted community? I think that's what God desires for the church. Can you see what might happen in the, the broader community as transformed, good stewards step outside the walls of the church and begin to generously give of themselves to an unbelieving world, how God might use that for his glory? When the people of God are sent out into the mission field to faithfully invest all that God has entrusted to them, they reflect Jesus to an unbelieving world. Now, Jesus was the perfect steward. And when you and I practice God-glorifying stewardship in the world around us, they see Jesus. This is the stewardship of the gospel. We know the gospel. We've been saved by the gospel. Now we need to steward the gospel and share it with others. So, let me conclude. As we learn to walk with Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus so that we can live in love as Jesus did, who came to seek and save the lost for the glory of God. And as God-glorifying stewards, we recognize that all that we are and all that we have has been given to us by God through Christ and belongs to God. Therefore, as stewards, we recognize every resource that we have been given is to be used for the glory of God. And so today, church, let's beg God by his spirit, to give us the posture of the good steward, the good servant, that we might faithfully invest all that God has entrusted to you and to me for his glory and expect his reward for doing so. Amen? Let's pray. Father, so grateful for the privilege and opportunity you give us each week to gather in this place and learn from your word, God. God, would you grow our church? God, would you grow me? I'm just going to be selfish, God. Would you grow me? God, there's so much growth that needs to happen in my life. God, be, be patient and gracious. God, with me as, as, as you move me along in life at immaturity, God, and would, you, would you grow our church? God, would you grow us in this area, Lord? Would you help us, would you help us re not just say with our lips, but really come to understand and believe in our heart of hearts that, that God, that you, um, that you are the owner of all things. God, help us to recognize that all that we are and all that we have has been given to us by you through your son, Jesus. God, help us really truly believe, God, that everything belongs to you. Help us to steward for your glory every resource that we've been given. God, help us to, to take a posture that would faithfully invest all that you've entrusted us back to you for your glory, God. God, help us to, to look to our left and look to our right and not live in siloed, isolated lives. God, but I, get, I pray that you would just work in us by your spirit, God, to lean into one another and to enter into real and deep and meaningful and authentic community where we can sharpen one another, invest in one another's lives and grow together. We just want the world to see you through us, God. We want you to be glorified in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.